And our New Testament lesson is found in Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16. This is God's Word. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let's pray. Father, as we gather around your word this morning, we ask that you would send your spirit and illumine our hearts and give us understanding. We're dependent upon you to teach us all things. It's only in your light that we see light. And so we cry out to you for help this morning. In Christ's name and for his sake we pray. Amen. As a junior in college, I went to Mexico during the summer following that year and had the chance to work with several MTW missionaries there in Mexico City. And while in Mexico City, I met one missionary. His name was Jay Kyle. Jay was a long-term missionary there. He'd served for roughly 15 years. And he met with this young group of guys from Furman University on one Sunday morning. They had uh, decided that we um, should not go to church any longer um, because we didn't understand enough Spanish. So they decided to hold a church service for us there in the little apartment in which we were gathered. And Jay asked us a question that morning that was extremely helpful. He said, how many of you are reading biographies of missionaries and pastors? We all kind of sheepishly shrugged our shoulders and admitted that none of us were reading those. And he said, I want to challenge you to do something that perhaps one of the most helpful things for your spiritual lives is if you took up the discipline of reading biographies about pastors and other uh, mentors and having some of these intellectual historical figures who can help shape and guide your life. And so that challenge sat with me for a few years, probably laid a little bit dormant, if I were honest with you. <laughs> And then last year, I remember those words from J. Kyle, and so I picked up a book by a man named Eugene Peterson. It was his biography, and it's called The Pastor. Peterson was a pastor for some 30 years outside of Baltimore, Maryland, not in a very special place, not in an extraordinary large church. He's an ordinary guy. But he recounts his years of pastoring and the different experiences that he had. Some of you will know of him because he is a well-regarded uh, author and has written many books. But Peterson was roughly around 40 years old when he published his first book. Some of you may have read it. It's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. One of the most humorous anecdotes that Peterson shares in his biography, though, is that this book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, that he took a backwards approach to publishing it. Normally, you get a contract with the publisher. They agree, and then you write the book. Okay? Peterson wrote the book and then took it to the publisher. And so he goes through multitudes of publishers trying to get someone to put the book in print, and no one would. And so the title for the book became somewhat humorous because it was a long obedience in the same direction for him just to find someone who'd be willing to print the thing. He thought it was useful. It had been worked out of years of pastoring, and so he wanted to put it in print, and no one would. Finally, they did put it in print, 
The book is still selling some 30 years later at a pretty fast clip. But listen to what Peterson talks about at the beginning of the book, because he's diagnosing a problem that we face in the Christian life. He says, it's not difficult in our world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. And so Peterson is pointing out that we face a tension, that in our market-driven consumer economy, we don't have trouble, per se, attracting people to the gospel, but giving people a sustained interest in the gospel over time that leads to Christian maturity is perhaps the most difficult thing that we face. And so this is why Peterson writes his book. And so he goes on to speak of all the things in life that work against our faith, that erode faith, that dissipate hope, that corrupt love, the tensions that we face in Christian maturity. And this is what Paul himself is speaking about this morning in Philippians 3 as well. Look what he says in verse 15. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul is speaking about spiritual maturity. Think this way if you are mature. And so in the short verses up above this, Paul will explain what it means to be a mature Christian. What it means to be moving and arriving towards maturity. And there's two things that we'll see in this passage. Because this morning we'll talk explicitly about the contours of maturity. What that looks like for the Christian. But the first thing is this. Is that we gain an appropriate level of modesty about our growth and progress in the faith. Now this will not make sense for some people. But for the Apostle Paul, it was essential for thinking about maturity as a Christian is that we gain an appropriate modesty about our growth and progress. Look what he says in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. One who has laid down his life for the sake of the gospel he has just spoken of how he has given up everything for the sake of Christ, and then he can turn in a modesty, in a humility, and say that he's not made it his own yet, that he's not perfected, that there is still work for God to do, that the God who began a good work in his heart and life is still at work. And friends, this is one of the most important things in self-awareness for every Christian as we mature, is recognizing that we haven't arrived. <laughs> Being self, very self-conscious and aware that there's always places in our lives that God will be at work, and to expect Him to, and to know that the maturity and the perfection that Paul is speaking of comes in a future day. 
that Paul was very aware of the impact of sin and the way that it reaches into the human heart and all that it corrupts, and that ultimately maturity only comes at the other side of the resurrection from the dead. That is how sophisticated and nuanced Paul's understanding of sin and its impact on the human heart is. And he's arguing back against a group of Jewish Christians who seem to be saying that circumcision was necessary for being a Christian. And then they seem to be ascribing to circumcision a power to perfect the flesh. And Paul is saying no. That it is the gospel, it is the person of Christ, his work in our lives that draws us to maturity. And that maturity is ultimately something that is only finally realized in the resurrection from the dead. And so in the Christian life, there will always be this modesty, a self-awareness, a humility, recognizing that we confess our sins and that we are in need of God's forgiveness. Some people inevitably, when they attend worship services with me, find that there are certain rhythms. And some people don't like repetition. But repetition need not be ritualistic. But one of the reasons that we confess our sins on the other side of a big, open, declaratory hymn about God is to recognize this. It's for us as a corporate body to be modest, to reflect upon our own failures, to reflect upon our own sins, and to cry out to God for mercy. And we do it week in, and we do it week out. Because this is part of spiritual maturity. For us to get very accustomed to that rhythm, to be very comfortable with it, Because Paul says he's not already perfect, and he knows that this perfection, this completion, this final goal is only realized at the resurrection. Now, I was able to deal with much of this firsthand while I was in Washington. I arrived there some seven years ago when I first began planting a church, and uh, one of the first questions that I encountered as a pastor, I had two children at that point, they were five and three, And someone asked me, now, were your children born naturally? I knew pretty immediately that I was engaging in a conversation that I had never engaged before. That there was some meaning behind these words that I wasn't, I I was uh, outside of, I was not privy to. And I said, well, what do you mean were they born naturally? They're they're here. Uh, (laughs) And I learned that uh, that what was being meant was, were they born naturally? without the aid of any drugs, or was, was there, you know, what was all involved? And, and I just asked the person, I said, of all the things to be certain about in life, why would you be so certain about this? That, that, that was God's way. And then there was that conversation, and then there was the conversation with someone about what foods I ate and where I bought them. And so very quickly, I'd gone from natural childbirth and and how that had happened in the hospital for us to what foods I consumed and where I bought them from. And then I would ping to a conversation with a pro-life advocate who would be equally vehement about the importance of me going and marching on a particular Saturday. And then you could run into someone in the church who would do the same about evangelism and a specific tool that they had adopted, and that if you didn't adopt their tool, then you were perhaps on the wrong side of this whole issue of Christian and non-Christian. And I was beginning to notice that there were all kinds of places in which Christians would place their confidence, that they found things to boast in. 
and that all those places that we found to boast in, whether it be the traditional things or whether it be some newer movements, that all those things were things that we could manage and control. They were things like food. They were things like how babies were born. It's not to say that Jesus doesn't have something to say about those issues. But when those issues become the source of our boasting, when they become our identity, like circumcision had become for these Jewish Christians, then they become enormous stumbling blocks. And we're grabbing onto things that we can control, things that make us feel righteous. And subtly, what these Jewish Christians had done is they had subverted Jesus. And we do the same thing. And Paul would call us to realize that all of our righteous attempts to boast, to build up a certain identity for ourselves, that we need to have more modesty. That we need to be very self-aware. This is not to deny that there is progress that is made in the Christian life. Francis Schaeffer gets it very right when he says there's substantial healing in the Spirit of God and His work in our lives. It's beautiful. But then there's also this profound recognition that we can't substitute our faults and failures that are going to be with us until God raises us from the dead, and we can't substitute some paltry form of self-righteousness, some strategy that we try to manage. But Paul is pressing into this idea that he will make it his own. But until that day, he understands that he will not, it will not be resolved. So we gain this appropriate level of modesty. Now the second feature, though, that Paul will outline for us of the Christian life, of what it is to walk into Christian maturity, is that we strive and strain to attain what has been attained for us. Look again at what he says. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. And this is actually language from the ancient world of racing that he's pressing on, he's straining and striving forward with a goal and a prize in mind, the finish line. And why is he in this race? Because Christ Jesus has made him his own. And so he's attaining something that has been attained for him. He's been brought into the race, and now he's pressing forward to the day of resurrection. When all of God's promises will be fulfilled and creation comes correct and is made right, that's the day Paul is striving for. And he goes on to explain that there's two pieces to this pressing on. Look what he says in verse 13, but one thing I do, forget first, forgetting what lies behind. That this is the first piece of pressing on that Paul forgets what lies behind. Now Paul has just given his resume up above this in chapter 3 where he explains who he was as a, as a, a, of the tribe of Benjamin, that he was a Pharisee, that he was a zealot according to the law. And that in this, there are a great number of sins that Paul committed. He persecuted the church. He killed people, most likely for their faith. Paul knew shame because of his failures, of his opposition to Jesus. He understands that he has to forget what lies behind. And he only finds the resolution to that in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. 
in God giving him a status and a favor that he could only have through Jesus' death in his place. Okay? So he can forget what lies behind. Now, the other thing that Paul seems to be referring to when he says to forget what lies behind is his own spiritual accomplishments. Paul understands that you can run a race well and not finish it. You can make it to certain points and features in the race, but not cross the line. That he's not boasting in, he's not becoming comfortable in what he has accomplished. He's not going to quit simply because he gets to a certain age. He's not going to grow tired. He's not going to become satisfied just because he did something big for Jesus. And so he's going to forget what lies behind. And this leads us to the second thing. He's going to strain forward. This is the image of the runner striving for the line, pressing to cross that finish line, compelled to do so, being pulled. Now, my sons are 11 and 9 years old, so we like Star Wars. And uh, we watch Star Wars a good bit. And um, there is a scene from the Death Star. And you have to forgive this illustration. The Millennium Falcon was captured by the tractor beam. You know this? This may date me, I'm sorry. <laughs> the Millennium Falcon is captured by the tractor beam of the Death Star. And then it's pulled into the port. They're doing everything they can to get out of the tractor beam. But the tractor beam has such this force and strength to it that it just pulls the Millennium Falcon in. I saw this when I was a little kid, and then I've watched it over and over over the past two years. Okay? And that's what Paul is saying about the finish line. That there's something compelling on the other side of it that causes us to strain and to strive forward. That when we say that there is an appropriate level of modesty about the Christian life, that doesn't mean that we become satisfied and just cynical. No, but we're still striving ahead because there's something out in front of us, something on the horizon that we're fixated on that pulls us in, that has its own magnetic force. But one of the things that perhaps happens to us is that just in the monotony of life, we can become bored. It's easy to start focusing on the race itself and perhaps how bad your knees hurt or how you need new shoes, or how you could really use some water. And you th start thinking about one foot in front of the other, and it makes it all the worse. And the monotony and the boredom of the Christian life begins to wear on us, and we begin to look to other things to anesthetize and to take care of our own pains and our own hurts and our own wounds. And rather than straining forward, we perhaps slow down to a cool gait. And friends, this is exactly the opposite of what Paul is saying Christian maturity looks like. It's not to slow down to a comfortable stroll, but it is to continue to be compelled forward, especially in seasons where there's dryness and boredom, where it's hard, that those are the moments where we need to press and we need to push hard, that we need to gain a vision once again of the finish line and to be compelled forward by it, pulled in. Several years ago, I was asking a friend for a recommendation on a novel. He told me that his favorite novel was Walker Percy's The Moviegoer. Some of you may have read it. And so I picked it up and took it on vacation with me. 
It was written in 1961. It was a bestseller. I read it and was completely depressed. <laughs> it was one of the most depressing books I'd ever read because it was about this young guy. His name was Bill Boinks, or, Bill, or Binks Bowling, sorry. <laughs> Binks Bowling. And Binks Bowling was a young financial analyst who was just lost in life. He bounced from one pleasure and one relationship to another. And the phrase that he uses over and over about his life is that he's caught up in the mundane. He knows his life is empty, and he's trying to anesthetize everywhere he can, on the right and on the left, so he's just drifting around. And this is what he says. He says, when I awake, I awake in everydayness. Everydayness is the enemy. Only once in my life was the grip of everydayness broken, when I lay bleeding in a ditch. He'd been in a car accident, and he nearly died. And he said, that's the one time I felt alive. And while many Christians are not to that extreme, there are many who just suffer from that monotony, that mundaneness, the malaise that cast over our lives, that we can feel incredibly bored, and the race that we're running doesn't seem very interesting and doesn't feel much like a race at all. It feels like a crawl. And friends, this is where the Apostle Paul wants to recast our imagination about the life that we are living. That yes, it is very regular, it is very ordinary, but it is a race nonetheless. And that we're striving towards something and he wants to recast what is out in front of us. And what is it that he puts at the finish line? Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. And so the question is, what is it? What is he referring to? And so it's back up in verse 11 that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And when Paul refers to the resurrection from the dead, he is speaking of an entire narrative of God making the world right, reclaiming creation as his own, removing the pollutants of sin, and making creation hum and sing as it was always intended to, under his rule, with human beings in their right relationship with God and with one another and all creation around it. He can pack all of that meaning inside of that phrase. And that's what he says the prize is. That's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's to this great new world. And Paul sees this as what sustains the Christian through the race. It's this vision of what is on the other side that makes him sacrifice, that makes him strain, that makes him strive, that allows him to forget what lies behind. And so he's pressing forward. And the question for us is, is the other side of the finish line that compelling to you? Does this biblical narrative of God's rule over all things that is going to be established when Jesus returns, is it that compelling? Are you telling yourself the right story? For some people, when they tell the story, they get caught up in the details of what happens right before the end. And that's decidedly not the New Testament emphasis at all. That the New Testament's emphasis is on what happens on the other side. That God's new world is born. And Paul would quote the Psalms and see them in all of their beauty, that creation will clap and sing, and there's all these awesome metaphors. 
that the valley of the shadow of death will be done away with. And that mercy and goodness will follow us all the days of our lives. And so that compels him. It pulls him like the tractor beam. It brings him across the line. And friends, that's Christian maturity. It's having a mature view of the world to come and how that enables us in the present to press and strive ahead in the everyday, in the mundane, in the malaise. It's knowing God's story and writing it deeply on our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that so often our lives don't feel like a race and we get lost. That we fail to strive and strain, pressing ahead towards the finish line. We get lost in other details of life and other things distract us and call for our attention. Help us to have this great vision of your new world, of what it means when you return to raise the dead, to make all things right and all manner of things right compel us and pull us into that. And may we run well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.